Okay, everybody, welcome to another Sensible Medicine podcast. This is John Mandrola, and I'm excited to have our old standbys, Dr. Vinay Prasad, Dr. Adam Sifu, are back, and uh, old school podcast, and excited to see you guys. It's good to be back. It's been a big hiatus. Absolutely. All right. Well, today we've got a very interesting topic, very topical. Dr. Prasad uh, was invited to give this lecture at the American Clinical Clinical Pharmacy Association, ACCP, was tweeted out that he was excited to give the keynote. And uh, some people didn't appreciate that, sent out tweets saying that they didn't appreciate that, and he was disinvited. So we're going to talk today about uh, free speech, um, in science, debate, and uh, also uh, Dr. Sifu has had COVID and recovered, and so we're going to talk about that as well. So Vinay, uh, tell us about the story with the clinical pharmacist. All right, we're recording this on a Sunday, the 15th of October, and I think sometime later this week an article will come out on the free press where I kind of take people through the facts of the story. But, you know, it's nothing too exciting, John, nothing too exciting. I um, was invited back in May to give a keynote address at the American College of Clinical Pharmacy Conference in Dallas, Texas. And uh, actually, in terms of background, they told me that, you know, it's like a 20,000-person organization, and they're going to be having their annual conference. They'd love for me to come and talk about medical evidence and evidence appraisal, which, you know, everyone who listens to this show will know we've been interested in a long time. And initially, to be honest with you, John, I was a little bit reluctant to say yes because I feel like I travel a little too much. You know, the last few years, I've been doing 70, 75 talks a year. Um, last year, you know, I put a list out. I went to like, you know, UCLA Harbor and USC and Harvard. I give a talk there. And at Stanford, I give a talk. I'm going to go to MIT in the spring. I mean, you know, I just do too much travel. And that's incredibly disruptive. You know what that's like. And so the thought of doing one more lecture was not exactly, you know, top of my list, but they were super nice about it. And they said, you know, we want to really have you do this. We think you're the perfect fit for this topic. And so, you know, like anybody else, we're all susceptible to flattery. So it worked. And I said, okay, I'll do it. I'll do it for you. What were you going to talk about? Then we decided on the topic and the topic was going to be, should medical evidence come with an expiration date? And that's the paper that Adam and I and a student at University of Chicago, uh, we had written, uh, Palmer Green had written a paper on this topic. And the basic premise is, you know, we did all these randomized controlled trials in the 80s of aspirin in a world where people were smokers and not as overweight as they are. Things changed. Statin use went up. Smoking went down. Obesity went up. Does aspirin still work? So it's actually a very good topic for pharmacists. It's going to be a talk about, you know, do we need to reassess the evidence for drugs? I think that's also true about, you know, COVID-19 therapeutics. I've written an article about that in Sensible Medicine. So it's about when do you reappraise medical studies? That's a topic. Then what happened? Somebody, I don't know who, went cruising through the ACCP website and they found that I was giving the keynote and they tweeted out the screenshot that I'm giving the keynote. This all happened this last week. And, you know, some people in the ACCP, it's, you know, it's like 16 to 20,000 members. I counted like maybe 50 or 60 of them. They didn't want me to give the talk. And their basic claim was that they disagree with my COVID-19 policy views, that I've spread, quote unquote, dangerous misinformation. You know about that, John. Not the, not the um, harmless misinformation, the dangerous kind, you know, the dangerous misinformation. And as a result, I shouldn't be able to give this speech on this other topic. 
And then we can talk a little bit. I mean, to be honest, in my opinion, of all, we've seen a lot of pylons on Twitter um, in the last few years. It actually wasn't that big. You know, I think most people I know didn't even see it. Usually when it's, I know it's big is when I start to get text messages that somebody's, that people are like, oh, they're talking about you on Twitter. I didn't get any text messages. Nobody I knew really saw it. Um, but a few people in the organization, then a few people, this is the other important thing, a few people who are anonymous, I'd say about a third of the accounts that want me canceled, you know, are anonymous. And then another third are people we all know, the same 20 people who don't like us. Well, at least me and John, everyone likes Adam, but who don't like me and John? It's the same 20 accounts. It's the same 20 people who didn't like me in 2017 because I said, you know, dunking on alternative medicine is like dunking on a seven-foot hoop. You know, it's the same people who disagree with me on um, uh, cancer screening, on uh, COVID-19 policy. It's the same 20 people, and they piled on because they don't like something I said. Or maybe once upon a time, I criticized their paper on coffee consumption and colon cancer risk. That's another, you know, so that's one person. Once upon a time, I had a debate with one person. They didn't like how the debate ended, you know? So it's a mix of people who, a few people in the organization who don't like you, a few people who are anonymous bots who may just want to see the world burn, and a few people who just don't like you for another reason and they smell an opportunity, they smell blood in the water. And, uh, and then what happened was, you know, a day later, I got an email saying, because of the complaints, we're canceling the talk. So talk canceled. And that's pretty much, pretty much the facts of, of the story. The one thing I point out is that some people have said, this is just the market deciding. This is just, you know, if the audience doesn't want you there, they don't want you there. And I will say off the bat, no one is obliged to be invited to talk anywhere. I mean, nobody has, you don't, you know, nobody's guaranteed to give a talk. Um, but let's just be honest. We don't know what the majority of the ACCP members think. I got dozens and dozens of emails from people who disagreed with the cancellation. We only know what 1%, less than 1% of people who are tweeting think about me giving the talk. So it's not a poll of the audience, actually. It's not the market deciding. It's a small vocal minority who are dictating what can and cannot be heard. So that's what I think happened. Adam? I think when you leave this, I always, you know, whatever, we'll have multiple things to talk about. I'm always struck by how bad the who's ever administrating these invitations look, right? Um, because first of all, it's a decision to invite someone which should be made thoughtfully. You know, does this person have something important to tell to our group? Um, Vinaya, as you mentioned, being a co-author on that paper, which I think has had really nice legs. I've sort of included that in more and more talks because I think it's it's was it's interesting. It was prescient. I think it becomes sort of more and more important by the day. You know, I think it's a great topic for this group. Um, and if there was going to be, you know, an actual groundswell against you, you know, they should have known that beforehand and prepared for it. Um, and then this kind of reaction to just say, oh, my God, this is too much trouble for us. Um, we're just going to cancel it. And so quickly makes just no sense to me you know the number of other ways that this could have been handled with you know no we think this is an important talk it, you know if you want to not go to the meeting or not go to this talk don't go or you know listen debate's good right um i'm sure you would have been more than happy to share your slides and say listen if someone wants to you know give a counterpoint to what you're talking about terrific or if someone wants to give a counterpoint to everything you you know have talked about in the last 15 years and debate that afterwards i'm sure you would have been open to that too um you know this is just not the way 
the academy, academics, science should should proceed. Vinay, can I ask you, I just want to get it right out there in the open. I mean, the letter, I pulled it up here, the, the, the letter that sort of stimulated this. Um, Dr. Prasad's history of spreading misleading and inaccurate information, comma, most notably his inappropriate comparison of COVID-19 response to the Third Reich is disgraceful. So we should just get that out of the way. I mean, I just, let's hear from you about that. Yeah, so I think that no one who, I think she's alluding to one of the 300 substacks I've written in the last two years. You know, I've written hundreds for mine and I've written uh, dozens and dozens for Sensible Medicine. I've written a few for Barry and uh, many places. Of, of all of those 300 pieces, there's one piece that talked about Germany in the 1920s and 30s. And let me, you know, I don't even need to tell you what I think. My like that's not that's not what I said in the piece at all. I do not compare COVID restrictions to Nazi Germany. That's obvious that I didn't do that. But let me tell you what David Zweig says. Quote in that piece, he says, "Quote Prasad talked about democratic norms that had eroded in the pandemic, including military action in Australia to prevent movement of citizens, which is the use of the military in Australia. That's what they did." Okay, Zweig writes, "Quote the piece is a conjecture about a possible scenario in the future." He argued there can be a slippery slope towards totalitarianism when democracies accept the loss of certain freedoms. And then he referenced Germany in 1929 to 1939. He did not say the COVID-19 response was like Nazi Germany, end quote. So look, should I have put that reference in? Absolutely not. Okay, that's the one thing that I learned. Well, we should never put that reference in. Did I say what she said, what she thinks I said? No, absolutely not. I'm basically saying that if you can suspend elections, because the governor decides or the president decides it's a quote-unquote emergency, somebody going to abuse that. I mean, that's kind of obvious. Somebody's going to abuse that power in the future, and it'll likely be somebody who wants to use it for their own political gain. That's the whole point of the piece. It has no comparison um, to the, you know, so that's an inaccurate claim. And then the next thing I'd say, John, I just want to flesh that out a little bit. I've never, uh, you, you, we can disagree about COVID-19 policy, all right? And I think it's going to be inevitable that smart people disagree. Why? Okay, if you shut down schools, if you shut down borders, if you use the police state to keep people in their houses and arrest them, arrest them for not wearing masks, and you don't have randomized evidence and masking helped. I mean, if you do these kinds of things, um, somebody's going to disagree with you. I mean, what are we going to say? Unprecedented actions, smart people will always disagree on. And that's all that happened here. I personally think that I'm very proud of my batting average in COVID-19. I said, don't mask toddlers. I think everyone agrees with me now. I said, you know, we can talk about Adam. If you get sick, you don't need to test. I think that's also right. Um, I think, you know, you don't need multiple booster after booster if you're a 20-year-old man and you had COVID. That's right, too. So where I've disagreed with the quote-unquote orthodoxy, I think, you know, I'm happy to debate those positions. But it, th the only misinformation being spread is what that letter states and not me. I'm not spreading the misinformation. She's spreading the misinformation about what she thinks I said, which I never said that. This is a problem. Oh, go ahead, Adam. Sorry. I was just going to say, this brings me back a little bit to the controversy at University of Michigan, right? Um, mm -hmm. Whatever it was, their white coat ceremony. Abortion, yeah. There we go. Right, and it was a, um, I may get the details wrong, but an OBGYN who had um, come out on the sort of pro-life side of the abortion debate um, was asked to give a white coat ceremony um, lecture completely unrelated to that topic, 
Um, and people objected to that because if there's one thing that somebody expresses that they disagree with, they clearly should not listen to anything that person says on anything because they have nothing that they could learn from or benefit from that person in any respect. You're being sarcastic, of course. Of course. <laughs> yes, of course. Um, but yeah, I remember that instance where, um, first of all, by all accounts, that's like a doctor who everyone wins, wins all the humanism, you know, all those golden canes that you have, Adam, in your closet, all those humanism awards that you've got socked away. I mean, this is the, the Michigan version of the consummate physician. I think she happened to be Catholic. And she happened to be pretty religious, and she happened to have a view that's sort of consistent with the Catholicism view, which is that, you know, they're generally not pro-choice. Uh, you know, uh, am I surprised? No. There's going to be somebody who you otherwise really like who you may disagree with on abortion. Um, in that case, they didn't cancel the talk, kudos to Michigan, but many of the students walked out. And I think that's a different kind of poor taste, which is the, the arrogance to think that, yeah, if you d disagree with somebody on one issue, you can't learn from them on any other issue. And that's a that's a really caustic and bizarre viewpoint. That and and I just want to add one thing. I actually think I was I was perfectly honest with myself the other day. I was watching a YouTube video of a lecture from like five years ago by somebody who I really hate. I mean, this person is like he, this person said something nasty about me in this whole tw debate. And I was watching this video, and this person had a couple slides in that video. And I again, I hate this person. I mean, this person's attacked me many times, um, and I disagree with this person on a lot of issues. But I was watching that video of this talk, and I said. You know, that's actually a pretty good slide. I was like, that person, actually, I was like, that's a pretty good point. And I actually emailed that slide to somebody I work with. And I say, maybe we need to think about this and there's something we can learn and maybe do a, you know, we can learn from this, like, and do, apply it in a different situation or something like that. And so I guess my point is that you can learn, from, of course, you can learn from people you disagree with. And sometimes they're the best teachers. They teach, they show you something that you were blind to. Um, and uh, I was hate watching the video, of course, as, as one does. <laughs> Would, well, you, would you have rather not be invited? Uh, would you have rather been disinvited or would you rather have been invited and had, you know, whatever, this plenary session be one of the most poorly attended sessions at the conference? <laughs> the truth is, I think, um, I think because I don't think we know what the actual audience wants, I bet it will be super well attended. Because for, if 1% if of people really dislike you, what does it just say? It just says that you're a polarizing figure. There's another 1% that love you. And then there's like a lot of people that have different feelings. And un unfortunately, me merely being known in any capacity means it'll pack the auditorium, for better or worse, you know? Whether you like someone or dislike somebody, positive or negative, merely being known packs an audience. So I think it will be well attended. If people want to get up and walk out in the beginning, that's fine. But it would make sense to me, Adam, if I'm giving a lecture on don't mask toddlers and they disagree that you ought to mask toddlers, and then they walk out. But if the lecture is on, does aspirin have relevance in 2023 based on randomized trials from 1980, and they get up to walk out, I don't know what you're protesting. You, you, you're, you want, you're angry about aspirin's changing evidence base? I don't know what you're protesting. That doesn't make sense to me. Because to be honest, I think, let's just think about the incentives. There, I think there are a few incentives it does. One, if you're a young person today, you are incentivized to never talk about anything other than the one thing you want to give talks on. So if you study, you know, some ion channel, you can never, ever talk about anything else publicly. And I think that just deprives the public of like, I don't know, dialogue, which is fun. I mean, you know, we haven't talked about, you know, the war in the Middle East, but, you know, we could talk about it over dinner, right? We haven't talked about, there are lots of issues that we would talk about, and I'd be interested to know what people are thinking. I mean, I'd agree with everybody on every issue. Okay, so that's one thing. The second thing is, if we live in a world where every time 100 Twitter accounts say, cancel this speaker, 
what you're going to do is you're just going to have more and more cancellations. Like, you know, I'm just one of many people. They're going to be another cancellation, another cancellation, another cancellation. And then who are the speakers you're going to be left with? The speakers that have literally never said anything about any controversial issue. You're going to be left with a very bland set of speakers. And I'll tell you something. There's only thing, the only thing worse than going to a talk where you hate the speaker is going to a talk where you're bored out of your goddamn mind. And that's 90% of these talks. That's not, what are we talking about? I am like on my phone wishing that the meteor would strike the audience, you know, strike the stage or something for some excitement. I mean, it's so boring. I think you're not appreciating the power of big aspirin as your, as your problem. <laughs> big aspirin. <laughs> well, there's two issues. One yeah. is the, the whole idea of the whole idea of being able to express ideas that are different than what consensus is. But also I want to get to the point of this happens in cardiology all the time is you, you said something in your post, you made a reference, but it had nothing to do uh, with what this person is saying. And it just sort of got trans. It's like, uh, it's, it, it's like a misinformation that just turned into information and just uh, went on and on and on. And, the ACCP leadership just just went for it, and I think the tweet on uh, or the the whatever it is post on X or Twitter or whatever. I mean, it got a lot of likes, and it's just it's almost like this. Speak about the the momentum of public opinion, and I call it in in cardiology. I call it therapeutic fashion, where things get established that don't have any basis, and it's it's actually misinformation from the beginning, but it just gets sort of like uh, uh, passed on through generations and stress test that for all chest pain kind of thing. Um, uh, this is what bothers me. Uh, you're, you're saying that like the, the claims that I said misinformation is a telephone game of rumors. Yeah. Yeah. Because what are my views? My views are the first view I had in the pandemic was we shouldn't close schools. Oh, who was right about that? Duh, you know, now that we have learning losses like you've never seen before and every kid got COVID anyway without getting vaccinated, who was right about that? Then my second view was uh, Johnson & Johnson should be pulled from the market because of it. Oh, who was right about that? Okay, they actually did downgrade it finally, but they didn't pull it. Then my other view was, oh, a 20-year-old boy, myocarditis dose two, spread those doses. Oh, who was right about that? They took another year to do that. You know, so like if you actually go through what I actually said, my point-by-point -point views, I think they hold up pretty well. In the piece with Barry, I admit there are a few things I was wrong about. I was wrong that... I thought that knucklehead Trump wouldn't be able to get a vaccine approved in, you know, as fast as he did. I was totally wrong. Operation Warp Speed was a tremendous success. You know, I'm happy to eat where, where I was wrong. Um, but I think my track record is pretty good. And to be honest, I think many of the people, they don't know even what I said and the track record. They don't actually, her letter doesn't really have a point by point list of the quote unquote misinformation I spread. She doesn't name anything. It's all a game of rumor. Um, that's one point. The second point is, I think we have to be honest, is that it is being fueled by people who don't like you for another reason. If you go back and read the history around Salem witch trials, we'll agree there are no such thing as witches. And if you ask, who are the people who made allegations of witches? It was often in the scenario where that person had had a past slight. They didn't like the way she looked at her husband, or they didn't like the fact that he cheated her out of, you know, the bread money one day. And people use this, this mob activity as an opportunity to extract revenge for things absolutely unrelated. And that's also dangerous. I mean, to live in a world where somebody's going to come at you for something that, like, many of the people don't want me to speak. They're not going to go to ACCP. You know, they don't care. They're not going to be there. And, you know, they just, they're just happy to see, that, to see me lose a speaking opportunity. That's what they want. That's the only goal. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
ask you, because it gets a little bit at what you were just talking to, um, and I think since I see a lot of your, you know, haters on Twitter. Yeah, they love uh, to tag you. Often, <laughs> often they complain to me about you. Yeah. Um, um, they said, boy, isn't it ironic that here is um, Vinay being, you know, trying to stand up as as some sort of beacon of free speech um, where he when he blocks everybody on Twitter. And I, I can't debate him because he won't listen to what I say on Twitter. Um, I, I read that as I'll, I'll let you respond. I mean, I just think that's such a ridiculous analogy because blocking somebody on Twitter means you're not allowed to comment in my timeline. You're not allowed to attach yourself to my post, but you're free to comment. You have your own Twitter account. You can, in fact, they do quite well at screenshotting me and talking about me. In fact, some of them live to do that. They used to make whole accounts to do that too. I mean, it's basically like saying, you know, you said a lot of mean things about me. And let's be honest, they have. They say that, like, they cannot understand we disagree, so they say my motivation is perverse, I'm just seeking attention, or I'm being paid by some right-wing corporation or whatever. Uh, I'm like, oh, yeah, the corporation that doesn't want toddlers to mask? Oh, who, who is that exactly, right? <laughs> Who's making money? Uh, not masking toddlers. Okay. Anyway, so they say all these nasty things, and basically, your time, your blocking somebody on Twitter is just, like, not inviting them into your living room. You're, you have freedom of speech. You can go out there. You got your living room. You got the street. You know, you got everywhere. You're just not coming into my dinner party. And I wouldn't have to block you if you had some decency. But in my uh, uh, opinion, they many times they don't have decency. And I also have to think about my own living room. I just can't have protesters in my living room. And that to me is what the analogy is, should be. Um, but if the question is, am I afraid to debate? I, I'd love to debate somebody as long as there's a moderator and some like voting. Uh, if the and and then the thing is, not to sound um, uh, I, in in all honesty, I do think that um, sometimes people get labeled a heterodox thinker, and I think maybe all three of us have been labeled that at some point. Being labeled a heterodox thinker often means that you, anytime you 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 don't take your opinions based on what your buddies say, you take your opinions based on you look at issue issue by issue. Of course, we can all be wrong, but we're trying to look at things issue by issue. I worry that some of the people who are arguing with me do not look at issues, issues by issue. They are extremely wedded to a certain cultural view. And we all know what that is on COVID-19 policy, which is that you are a Democrat. You have a Ukraine flag in your bio. You know, you support, um, you know, uh, DEI efforts at universities. Uh, you also support masking toddlers, m many boosters, as many boosters as Ashish Jha and Albert Borles say you need. You support Anthony Fauci. You think lab leak was racist. I mean, it is a, it is a platform of views that fit with the left. And that's, that's it. I mean, so what do you want me to say? Like, you think you're an independent thinker? Every one of your views is the Democratic Party platform. Okay, I mean, it's not, I mean, what do you want me to think? You're not looking at, I think whenever I talk to people one-on-one, -on -one, no one has read the masking studies. When Cochrane put out the review, you know, that John Darrow and I, we had our review published a few months earlier. It's the same thing. We have the same conclusion. I mean, we're trying to do the work. And I, I mean, what do I want to have somebody in my timeline who's not doing any work and like just blabbing at me? Um, so, you know, they get blocked. And then the other thing is I use automated blocking software. That's the other point. I'm not even blocking these people. Somebody says something like, and this is a true thing. They could say, John Mandrola wants to see young men die or John Mandrola's pro-virus. And then it gets a thousand likes. And I'm going to block anyone who liked that because I think that's just so tasteless. I don't want those people at my dinner party. Somebody who would say John Mandrilla wants people to die or something. And they have said things like that. That's what we're talking about, getting blocked over is because they're saying you want kids to die. 
In fact, isn't there some nut? <laughs> no. Isn't there some person whose only only thing in life is writing books about how other doctors want people to die? And you know, that's his whole mo on Twitter. So that's what I'd say. Blocking is not the same as free speech. It's just not in my dinner party. You're free. You can go on. You got all. You got Twitter, dude. You got it. You got all your platform. Let me ask Adam. Now, Adam, you're at the University of Chicago, and University of Chicago is pretty famous about this free speech business. And Tell our listeners about how the atmosphere there is. I mean, everything's fine at University of Chicago, right? There's no issues. Everybody can say whatever they want there. I think what's striking for me about the University of Chicago and where I've really only been involved following the you know, efforts to maintain academic freedom at University of Chicago. And I think um, U of C is probably known for two things. Um, first is the Kelvin Report, which is the idea that the university itself should not speak on topics unless they directly, you know, threaten the university's ability to exist as a university. Um, and related to that, therefore, are that faculty and students um, have an absolute right to free expression uh, because that's how you learn um, to share your views, um, some of which are distasteful, some of which are controversial, and debate those. Um, and so you do not see the University of Chicago coming out supporting either Israel or Palestine because the president's office and the administration and the board of directors don't see that conflict as a uh, threat to the university functioning as a university. Um, and we would work to allow debate on the issue um, among students, invited speakers, whatever. I think what's striking about University of Chicago being here is the effort and energy it takes to maintain um, this sort of culture and this sort of environment. Um, it is not easy. And I think in today's world, actually, the default is to suppress um, ideas that you don't like that are not popular. Um, and there are some people, you know, colleagues of mine who I wonder how they actually do their job, because it sounds like what they're doing most of all is is making sure that we we as a university um, you know stay at the standards we've set for ourselves. You know, they also had University of Chicago Dorian Abbott. He's the geologist who was given a talk about my understanding is rocks at MIT, <laughs> whatever the whatever the hell they do, you know, and they canceled his lecture at MIT about rocks because he didn't like affirmative action. And he had written about that prior. But last I checked, affirmative action has nothing to do with rocks. And so it was a bit bizarre. But um, luckily, Princeton held the lecture anyway, and so he got to do it. Um, but I think it is, it's a bad. I mean, I guess, look, you know, even if I'm not, an uns even if I'm not a sympathetic character, because there's going to be somebody listening who doesn't agree with me, um, you do have to think that, you know, five years ago, it would be if you spoke about gender reassignment, that was the hottest topic, right? Then you get canceled. Then it's affirmative action, you get canceled. Now it's COVID-19 policy, you get canceled. Where's it going to be in five years? Is it going to be... We have I, one. What? We have a new one. What's the new topic? We, we have about? a situation. We have a situation. In one month, we have American Heart Association meeting. American Heart Association has come out with a statement 
um, about the Israeli-Palestine conflict. And a heart failure cardiologist has objected and actually pulled her lectures and said that because the American Heart Association has made a statement about this, that she doesn't feel comfortable coming uh, and giving her lectures. I see. And then I guess we're one step away from um, uh, that the, the conference would cancel the speaker. But you're saying she canceled because – and what does the statement say? Which side are they, are well, they not on the side? It, or, yeah. it, it, the American Heart Association came out with a – came out with a statement and i didn't i can't say the details but let's just say it was let's say it was just expressing dismay about the tragedy last saturday um and uh yeah so basically like like adam just alluded to the american heart association made a comment about a political topic that may i doesn't seem to affect the american heart association and uh but but these lectures have nothing to do with the uh, Palestinian-Israeli conflict. Presumably, they have to do with the heart. Correct. Okay. I just think it's it's going to be it's going to be five years. It's going to be. I think it'll be even further in five years. I, I mean, at the current trend, unless there's a backlash, at the current trend, it'll be like, oh, John Mandrola once said, "quote I won't get a colonoscopy." So he's not allowed to give the talk at the American Palm Critical Care Association because colonoscopy saves lives, you know, something like like, I mean, what, when do we get to the point where it's like literally it's so absurd that you had a view on anything? Uh, but it doesn't John, save lives. We already know that. <laughs> we have no trial. It does prevent cancer, though. <laughs> it does. It does prevent cancer with uh, after there's an initial spike. Shut up. Let's start that. Yeah, let's not get it. No, but, uh, no, but the, the yeah, larger yeah. point is the larger yeah. point, I think, is really I really think. I really think the academy uh, academy has to step up, and um, I'm just uh, I'm, I have this tension in my head. On one hand, I, I I have this view that the academy is about thinking and about um, throwing ideas out there and persuasion and changing minds. And then on the other hand, I mean, if you're a heart association, uh, it just seems to me that the uh, you know uh, geopolitical conflicts are probably not relevant yeah I would, I would have stayed out of that one yeah if the heart but john here's what here's what i think you're putting your finger on it but who in the academy needs to step up the problem is the administrators in my opinion like i actually don't blame the people calling for canceling because you know as one of them tweeted in response quote unquote bullying works end quote like and then like yay we did it we got him canceled from the thing like they had a mission the mission was i didn't talk and they've succeeded in their mission and Every time they get a success, they're going to do it again and more. You know, they're they've been uh, Anish Koka got canceled. You know, and and remember a couple a couple years ago. You know, and so every time they get a victory, then they're going to get another. They're going to go after another victory. But who should be the the adult in the room? The adult should be you know, yeah, we hear you. You know, he's talking about evidence appraisal and not COVID policy. If you want, we'll ask him to give a talk later in the afternoon on COVID policy, and we'll get someone to debate him on COVID policy. If you want to talk about it, presumably. Somebody said, like, the pharmacists are upset. Well, again, I just want to point out, we only know about, like, less than 1% of them. But presumably they're upset because their business is to promote repeat boosters, and I'm a critic of repeat booster and somebody who had COVID because there's no, you know, there's no data. Well, that's not their mission, actually, as a pharmacist. Your mission is to be the thoughtful steward of medical products. Maybe that means not to, you know, give the booster. Just like they're antibiotic stewards, it's like you could be booster stewards. And if they want to debate the booster, I'm happy to have an afternoon debate on the booster. But that's not the topic of my morning talk at all. Adam? But uh, let me just stop you because, you know, yeah. John, you asked, you know, for the academy to step up. 
And I think Fanai just demonstrated that what's frustrating about this is that it is not difficult for the academy to step up. You know, what you just described, Vinay, um, you know, extemporaneously, right, was what you could say, okay? It's not complicated. And you can actually look up on the internet and find, you know, dozens and dozens of defenses of unpopular speakers, which have been written by people smarter and more eloquent than me by a thousand times, right? And just plagiarize those, you know, change the names and put that out there um, and say, listen, you know, we're about sharing ideas and open debate and free expression. And if you're not interested, don't come, you know? And if you're interested and want to ask questions in an open forum, you know, be our guest. That's what we're here for. It is It is. It is just frustrating. It's sad. Can I, and, yeah, go can on. Can I ask you another question, uh, Benai and Adam? I want to ask you about tone. And tone. one of the criticisms that I sometimes get, and I'm sure that you get, is is you, you have to criticize with a certain tone and you can't come out too hard and you, you can't, you know, uh, you just have to use the proper tone and, and everything. And I actually think that tone is overrated. And I just wonder, I mean, you're, you're, I mean, a pretty candid speaker. So I wonder what, what you're feeling about that is. And, and do you have any uh, second thoughts about, how strong you speak or write. Well, you know, I guess, I, I, look, I hear, I've heard it all from people, but I, so I guess I'll tell you my, my bottom line. One, we've had dinner together. So you know that when you see me on Twitter, I did tone it down. That's, I always tell people, they're like, you know, why don't you tone it down a little bit from your real, what you really think? I was like, I'm toning it the fuck down, actually, because when I speak extemporaneously at a dinner, it's going to be toned, it's going to be the way I talk. It's a personality thing. That's one. I mean, I think I just, it's, it's a personality thing. Adam has always had a different tone than I've had. You know, you always, you have a different tone. We all have our different tones. Okay, that's one. Two, I do have some personal rules of thumb online. I try never to make an ad hominem argument. I always try to like ar attack the argument. But if there's an organization doing something like the Pediatric Association who said you should mask a toddler, right, remember them, and then they said, quote, unquote, there is no evidence babies need to see faces, end quote, when they say something that's so stupid, you know, like pretty, pretty stupid, I'm going to call them out, the organization, which is not an individual, in a very harsh way, because they're presumably speaking on behalf with the imprimatur of the organization. So I'll be harsh on them, and I'll take a very snarky tone. Um, so that, I mean, so I guess, and, and then, of course, it's a balancing act, because you know, people are popular in part because of how you deliver the content, also what the content is. Um, and, you know, like anybody else, we can always regret our tone. You're a little too angry one day or not the other day. So sometimes I do regret. I should have put it a little bit differently. But then I want to point out something that the people who called for my cancellation, let me read you one of their tweets after they succeeded. Quote, fuck yeah, drop that trash human Vinay Prasad baby. That's how it's done. End quote. And nobody who said that my tone is wrong replied in this person's comments that fuck yeah, drop that trash human baby, me, because <laughs> I guess apparently my whole, my whole life is trash, right? Because I, I disagree on a few issues, my whole life is trash. Nobody told this person that it, you maybe went a little too far, right? So everybody calls out tone if it's the person you don't like, but if they're throwing a punch in the direction you like, everyone's cheering it on, you know? And so it's just like, okay, come on. Uh, so we all have, I have my personal rule of thumb, I'll never insult a person. I'll try to, I do ignore a lot, you know, um, but... Am I going to put something in a snarky way? Of course, but that's because people who've had dinner with me know that it's going to be even snarkier if we spoke in person. I mean, it's just the way I talk. What do you want from me? I was, okay. Yeah, Adam. I, I, 
I I struggle with this because I find you know and and honestly it's it's mostly on Twitter right a lot of the tone is offensive um, and listen you know a vanilla I have watched you and I and I said oh my God you know I wish she didn't say it that way um, but to to absolutely support what you say the problem with tone and I like the tone everywhere to be better is that everybody can attack everybody for tone and when i i think i don't know one of the tweets which i was attacked most on was when somebody we all know um you know pointed out that he, this person had now been blocked by i don't know 10 people about covid um and i said well maybe you should reflect on your tone you know um because maybe that's why those people are blocking you and of course that person's whole crowd was like oh my god what's this tone police you know and so you know i i think we should probably recognize that a we could all do a bit better and b we shouldn't be scolding you know the other side whatever that is um, when we fail on tone, because we're all pretty bad at this. When one woman dumps you, it's easy to say maybe it was her issue. But when ten women dump you, you might have to start to look in the mirror. <laughs> you might have to look in the mirror. They're all dumping you. It's like why? Why are they all dumping me? <laughs> oh, it must be. It must be them. <laughs> it's every one of them. But it must be. Well, <laughs> the the whole issue though is yeah. that some stuff is pretty. I mean, some stuff needs to be called out. Like I, I'll. Yes. You know, on, yes. on my podcast, like I'll find these studies that are uh, that I really think, and mm. I, I really think they're more marketing than science. But just saying that a study is more marketing than science gets people really mad. And but if 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 you can't say that and and you can't be candid, then um, then then it, it's I just think it's really problematic. But John, there's a big difference saying that this is more marketing than science than saying these authors are idiots how could they possibly have their position they should be fired right um and i think nobody would object to calling out people when i mean nobody should object to calling out people when you think they are wrong and explaining why they are wrong um, but as when I said, you know, the attacks beyond that, whether you're calling someone trash or an idiot or whatever, you know, I feel like don't do that. But I understand it's how people speak and it what's make, listen, the two of you have, you know, hundreds of times as many followers as I do, you know, for a reason. Um, but along those lines... I mean, I think you're right. We, I think we all agree on the ad hominem. I don't think any of us do that. But I think that the second thing is like, should you tag someone's employer and say they should be fired? That's also a hard line for me. I don't do that. You know, I read a study from Harvard that I think is incredibly wrong or misleading, but you don't see me tag Harvard and say, this person's nutritional epidemiology study is bunk. They should be fired. But I did say NIH should stop funding these kinds of studies, which is a different claim. It's not about that person. It's about the whole genre. Um, but, you know, as you say, I think it's like such an impossible thing to police. All right, yeah. Let's let's move on to Adam getting Adam's, sick. Adam's like, uh, uh, how should I say his 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 malingering is the word. Did you his, his, his encounter Guys, with infectious I, disease? I, I, um, I'm trying. How the hell did you avoid COVID this whole time? 
I mean, he's I've already ri- he's rich. Twice. He's rich as as you can know. <laughs> the fact that I've avoided COVID for this long has only to do with um, you know a case report about me somehow not getting COVID, um, some weird some weird luck or whatever. Um, and it's a lot of luck because I have been quite lax in all of my personal protective um, maneuvers. Um, but why I wanted to discuss this is because I, I want to discuss this new syndrome, which which I really think is important. And I think that should be named after me because I'm all about, you know, getting more followers and more recognition. Um, you know, it's been a long time, like a lot of us, you know, that I've had just a bad flu or bad upper respiratory tract infection. And I think it's amazing that just after you felt like crap for a while, when you finally get back to feeling like normal, you all of a sudden feel superhuman, right? <laughs> um, you adjust to like feeling terrible and feeling tired and feeling miserable. And then all of a sudden, like one day you get back to normal and you're like, oh my God, I got to run a marathon. <laughs> you're supposed to have long COVID actually, but uh, I see that you have the opposite. What do you call this? This is post-acute COVID mania. And I think it lasted for three days because now I just kind of feel like a normal person again and I'm sort of upset about it. Now, let me ask you this. You felt sick with the respiratory virus and you tested for COVID. What did the, what did the, how did the test help your life, Adam? How did it help you, that test you did? Um, well, you, of course, because you're such a good friend, when I, um, <laughs> when I texted you to say I had COVID, your response was, huh, I'm not sure why you tested. Someone could <laughs> Um, so, so I thought about this and, and I have, because of how old I am and what I grew up with, I would say that I have not been good about presenteeism in the future. I was one of those people who got IV fluids, you know, on a call shift, um, when I was an intern and I have certainly gone to work at times probably that I should not have in the past, um, after feeling crummy for a day, and I had a long differential diagnosis of why I felt crummy, I woke up a Monday morning with you know beautiful bed shaking rigors and a fever of 101, and a clinic filled with 80 year olds that afternoon. And my response should have just been, "I'm staying home." Right. But really, what I was thinking was, "God, it's such a hassle to stay home or do phone visits or whatever." You know, if I don't have COVID, maybe I'll put a mask on and go to work, which would have been stupid, right? Um, and knowing that I had COVID was a little bit of an extra incentive to actually do what we all should do. And if we feel terrible and we are obviously contagious with something, we should just not go to work. Yeah, that's what I want to ask, Adam. Yeah. Why? Wh- wh- why would it have been stupid? Um because I see a lot of very high-risk people who I don't want to get sick. Um, and it doesn't matter if it was COVID, if it was flu, if it was RSV. Yeah, yeah. He, he's exactly. That, yeah, exactly right. He's conceded I, the point. Yeah, I think he's, right. yeah. I was contagious with something. I should not have gone to work, period, um, um, whatever I had. I did not need a test to tell me that I shouldn't go to work. Correct. That's um, the point. Yeah, right. But because of who I am and because of how I've behaved in the past, um, I may have gone to work if I had a negative COVID test, which would have been wrong. <laughs> so, you know, I think it's interesting, John, because I got to do um, this one thing that in my department, we're going to have a debate on this topic uh, in a bit. 
And the debate's going to be, I'm going to debate the proposition that if you're sick, you shouldn't test for COVID. And essentially my argument's going to be like, look, if you're sick, no matter what the cause, if you're sick and you feel sick, don't go, you know, whatever. Like, even if you're spreading rhinovirus, rhinovirus will kill somebody. Like in Adam's clinic, it's possible that there's a 90 year old who rhinovirus is going to kill, you know? So like one should be, you know, and also like, you know, if you really don't feel up for working, maybe you're, it's not good for you to work. Okay. So that's a strategy. One is like, use your symptoms to guide your actions. That's strategy one. Strategy two is the COVID-19 testing. And I think it actually leads to the kind of an error that Adam is saying, which is that a false negative or a negative actually will make you t- take risk because, oh, I don't have COVID. So I'll go kill him with, you know, influenza B, you know, you know, kill him with that, you know, cause I don't, you know, right. Or I'll kill him with the, uh, you know, something, you know, so you could spread a different virus. That's one. Two is, I think the other false error it leads to is that people keep testing and then they say something like, I'm, I've been feeling better for a week, but I keep testing positive, so I'm not going to go into work. And this is the part that I'm digging into the literature. It is very, very nebulous in my mind. Like, yes, if you keep testing positive, yes, you can have viral culture present, yes. But is there actual evidence you get the next person sick and the test is, keep, is preventing that? You know, there's just no good evidence. And so... I would love to see the people who've made billions and hundred billion dollars from the tests do a randomized trial of if you feel sick, test versus no test, and then measure anything you want. How many of your family members get sick later or how many of your coworkers get sick, any endpoint to prove that the testing is a useful strategy. Um, I think it's going to be like Arctic, you know, platelet reactivity testing after stenting. We, can I just get that analogy? There was many years ago, people thought that if you put a stent in, you put yourself on Plavix, some people still have reactive platelets, like the Plavix, which is an ADP receptor antagonist, is not optimally inhibiting platelet. And in that case, you should switch them to Prasagel or Ticagrelor, right? That's the thinking. Then they did a 4,000-person randomized trial of routine testing for that platelet reactivity and switching versus no testing at all, just putting on Plavix and live with it. And there is no difference in cardiovascular outcomes. In other words, the routine testing of platelet reactivity doesn't improve outcomes. And I think if you did that for COVID-19 testing, you get the same outcome. That's my feeling, you know? That's the kind of trial you need. Um, Well... Yeah. If we had a, let's just go back to 2018 yeah. or 2019 before the pandemic, if we had PCR testing for RSV or rhinovirus or adenovirus, I mean, don't you think those viral panels would stay positive longer than people are sick? And then, how, I mean, we, we never used PCR testing for those other viruses. Yes, correct. And I also think that, go on, Adam, what's his I, I was going to say, I'll, I'll certainly get into trouble by saying this with, um, with some of our sensible medicine subscribers, so please don't don't at me in the comments, as they say. <laughs> um, the CDC guidelines right now, as far as return to work and not testing and and all, are actually quite good and quite re- reasonable. Um, and um, I, <laughs> excuse me, my post-COVID cough. Um, I let people know, you know, look this up because most people when they're feeling better and they've, you know, been five days out from when they first got sick, you know, they're like, go do what you want to do. Um, And I think that's what we feel is appropriate. And when someone calls me and as you say, they say, I'm on day seven and I'm still testing positive, but I think maybe the line is a little lighter. My recommendation is, why are you testing? Stop testing. You yes. Know, maybe save the test for the next time or maybe just throw them all away. Well, you know, we to should... feed the sensible medicine base, I have to say, though, you're right that their CDC guide, I just pulled it up. It's actually pretty reasonable for return to work, but they still recommend 
to this day that the two-year-old still wears the mask at times of high out, high spread in the community. They still say the two, they still, they still have the two-year-old. So here's but what I think. Not, yeah. Just because you disagree with them with one thing, does it mean you should <laughs> No, I'm happy to take this, but I, here's the explanation. M- money talks because who is like, if you're a politician, if you're a business owner, you need these people to get back to work. <laughs> you need them to get back to work and you can't have them at home, keep testing positive and all this stuff. But the toddler masking, you're like, eh, it's not, this doesn't affect me. We, we yeah. should talk about, we should talk about the culture of medicine, about this whole notion of feeling like, feeling like you have to go back to work. I mean, my story is that in the 1990s, uh, I was training for a marathon and, and just got run down and had these night sweats. And I, so my solution was to sleep in front of our <clears> fireplace. <throat> and I finally just was so sick after a big, long run on Monday morning. I thought I can I can just gut it through. And I actually passed out during a during a pacemaker implant. Some surgeon had to come in and they wheeled me into the doctor's lounge. And I mean, they thought I had some sort of pancreatitis or appendicitis. And uh, finally, I got them to like leave me alone and but I had like strep pneumonia, bacteremia, and uh, infiltrate was trying to do surgery. So this whole notion of going to work sick, this is really a, a, a cultural thing in medicine. And I just wonder, could possibly one aspect of COVID help transform this whole notion that we, we, we have to do this? But I, I still read on Twitter that, you know, ER shifts aren't covered, you know, night shifts aren't covered. And it's, it's, there's tension there. You know, the pendulum on one end, when you tra- you both trained in 1940s and 50s, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> so the pendulum was to like, you know, push yourself, right? You know, never admit, never show weakness, go when sick. And actually, even when I trained, um, the pendulum was that way. Like I went, you know, I went very sick, like so sick that like, you like four cups of coffee and you maybe need an epinephrine pen to get through the shit, you know, like you really feel sick. You need some cortisol for you, banana bag, that kind of stuff. You feel real sick. Okay. So that was our culture. Now the culture I worry has swung so far the other way. Cause now it's all mental health day. I was like, what does mental health day mean? You're just not feeling up for it. And I was like, okay. And then somebody's like, somebody told me, uh, you know, they're supposed to be in my clinic for four weeks in a row. The first week we were there and the next three weeks, um, they had to go to the dentist one week for the staging, then the part, sorry, part one of the procedure, part two of the procedure, and then the follow-up to the dentist. And I said, you know, when I went to the dentist before medical school, when I was a professor, that's when I went to the dentist. I didn't go to the dentist. I mean, three out of four weeks, is a lot of dental work, you know? So, you know, there's got to be a happy medium where people get some time off for sickness and, you know, um, personal things, but also they still have the culture that this is not a regular, this is not you know, working, making widgets. This is a job where you do need to show up and take it seriously. And I don't know how, if we're ever going to strike the right balance. It's like a Goldilocks problem. Way to disrespect the widget makers. <laughs> Lost another bunch of subscribers there. <laughs> yeah, you know me. I'm biased. I think medicine is a unique thing that we do. What do you mean? I mean, <clears throat> I feel like this is going to sound bad, but um, I don't know. How, well, how old, how old is our profession? It's what? Like it's 10,000 years. It's not even thousands of years. It's 10,000. Like there's always been, as long as there have been people who are sick, they've been healers. And, in the, and it's an ancient profession. It's a profession where you have to show your ass up. During the pandemic, I didn't, get to, I didn't get to work from home on Zoom. I had to get my ass there and do the real job. So it's a real job where you actually talk to people and you do real work. And you use science and medicine and your noggin to try to make people better off in your hands too, you know, and uh, you try to make people better off. And, you know, I think it's a sacred and impor- important job. And 
No offense to people, but sometimes I ask people what they do for a living and I have no idea. It's just buzzwords. And then I'm like, okay, just walk me through. Like, are you making PowerPoints or like you're on the computer? Like, I, I don't know. I'm like, I literally do not know what you do. I don't know what a back end is and an infrastructure is and a front end. And I don't know what a skip manager is. I don't know what any of this is. But I was like, I know in medicine, someone's coughing up blood and then you got to go down there and look to see where the blood's coming from. You know, I'm like, I'm, I'm a dumb doctor. So I guess I think it's a special, it's an, it's an honor to do something that you feel like you really feel like it does matter. I mean, even the most burnt out cynical doctor, I think still believes that like, yeah, we need this. This is an important thing. Maybe, and yes, all the problems we talk about on this podcast, we do too much medicine for people who have too much wealth. We don't do enough for people who don't have access to healthcare, but sometimes we do something good, you know? And that's more than what a lot of people can say. Look at this, I just got the new phone. What the fuck is, you know, like what are we doing? You know, I don't know what they're doing. I mean, yeah, it's a little bit better, but it also makes life bad in a lot of ways. That's another thing. This pylon, couldn't. I, my lecture would not have been canceled in 1995 because there's no website where the 1% of people who hate me can congregate and plot to send emails to the person in coordinated fashion, you know? So my lecture would never have been canceled. So cancel culture is contingent on technology, um, I think. And um, go on. I really like your comments about about the job and, and how showing up is important and how, I mean, I sometimes... I know it sounds goofy, but sometimes run around the office just reminding everybody that we're here because we're we help people, and I really I I really think it has meaning. Now, on the other side of the coin is there's just too much of this whole, you know, uh, glory you know making medicine so glorious and all of this business, and so <clears throat> that's on the other end. But I'm in the bottom line is I really. I, I enjoy it. I, I enjoy it. And I, I think it has meaning. And even days that are just banal and, and nothing bad happens or nothing great happens. It's just, we're just clinic day. We're just taking care of people and talking with people. It's still a meaningful thing. And I think to, to do it, it requires, it requires just showing up and, and, and doing it. Adams, I know Adam's bias. He thinks the best job in the world is professor of medicine. Not just professor, it's the medicine part, right, Adam? Say it. I know it's true. No, I, I do. I, I mean, I'm very proud of what I do. I love what I do. And um, obviously, we don't have to compare ourselves to other professions, but, um, um, but if I had it all to do all over again, I would do the exact same thing. Um, Me too, except I do derm. <laughs> no, just kidding, just kidding. You would have never actually. Started. <laughs> actually, actually, I have a new, I have a new respect for derm since I've had a bunch of rashes and had to go to the dermatologist and have no idea what they are. And the dermatologist looks at it and says, "You fool, that's poison ivy." But I had well, no. Idea. Come on, I respect derm too, and Adam is biased because his wife is a <laughs> terrific dermatologist who runs the program. Um, but yeah, of course, they know a lot of stuff. Yeah, it's good. All right, uh, awesome conversation. Right. Awesome conversation. And so remember. Uh, if you like this podcast, please, please, it, it's uh, take the time, give us a rating, uh, write us a brief review, let us know what you think. Uh, we'll put this up with links, and uh, thank you very much. Great to see you.